Thanks to Acast for hosting and monetizing the podcast. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. to see you. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby! And I am that woman, your host, Liv. 
here today with part two of my conversation with the oh-so-fun and knowledgeable Eduardo Garcia Molina. This was such a fun conversation. It was amazing just letting Eduardo talk about all of this. So much information just sitting in his brain waiting for a microphone. It's awesome. The Hellenistic period has never really interested me all that much because I've been so focused on the archaic and classical, but now... Man, am I fascinated by these Hellenistic kings and their varied empires, the way they expanded and melded with local cultures, combined gods and traditions. It's all so fascinating. Turns out so much can happen over many hundreds of years. Like, who knew? A period of culture shock, the middle child, so many interesting ways of viewing and, and understanding this period. Like, fuck, I love learning new things about the ancient world. Discovering periods and ideas that I didn't know would be as interesting and appealing as they are. There's so much more than Alexander and Cleopatra to the Hellenistic period. So many hundreds of years in between. So much happening. So much to add to our understanding of the ancient world and the people who lived there. Just all across the Mediterranean and beyond. Man. But again, why am I trying to explain about it when I could just play the rest of our episode? conversations, Hellenistic kings, mythic callbacks, and cosplaying heroes. The Hellenistic Period with Eduardo Garcia Molina. Because I did, I did the basic Greek history in university and I know that there was like two courses that were required under the program and it was like pre-Alexander and post. Yeah. And I, I hate that so much. Yeah. It's like, that's it. And then also though, the Greek history prof when I was at Concordia was like the world's oldest man. Like he should have <laughs> retired so long before and you could tell in every moment that he was speaking. And it was just unfortunate. Cause I think I had a great prof for Roman history and it's so much more memorable, even though the Greeks are like my people, but mm. it's just like, the, the way it's taught but yeah a lot, a lot yeah. of it has to do with teaching uh, and a lot of the times especially for hellenistic history because maybe a department doesn't have someone that focuses on that mm -hmm. you, you'll you'll get someone you'll get like a roman uh, an early uh, empire scholar that has to do like a gen ed course and they of course want to just like oh god oh god oh god oh god get to that so the the, the period also suffers from in gen ed courses being seen as kind of a stepping stone and all, and people just also focus on the West. Uh, mm. Because of course the Hellenistic period is not only a tale of, of the Hellenistic empires, but also the rise of Rome. Mm -hmm. And it's such a gravity well of interest there because you have so much extant history that focuses on that for, from antiquity. Polybius is one of our main sources, like writing a history um, because we don't have, so many authors are lost to us. Uh, there's a Babylonian author that writes a history of the Babylonian period up to like, oh. I know, but he's lost. Uh, I know. The more it, I, I mean, that this is a constant, obvious like thing in my life, but it's like, I always, I'm, there's always a new one to learn about and be like horribly yeah. distraught that we don't yeah. have things. Uh, what I would do for Barossos is Babyloniaca. You see snippets of it in like later 
Greco-Roman authors mm. because they have it, of course. They they can yeah. reference it. So we we can see snippets of it. But it would be so nice to have. But that's one of the things studying the studying the Hellenistic period is also a, a study of frustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, because our literary sources are scant. And if they are, they're typically looking westward because they're typically Greco-Roman authors. You have mainly it's Polybius for the histories, and then you have a bunch of inscriptions that supplanted. Um, you have like Appian and and uh, other authors later on, your Plutarchs and everything. But they focus a lot on Polybius, especially. He he states in the beginning of his history he wants to focus on why the heck these weirdos in in Italy have suddenly become a superpower uh, in the Mediterranean. He says that, well, not weirdo. Uh, weirdos is kind of implied in his wording. Um, <laughs> I like it. I mean, if, you, if you're, a, if you're a, um, a captive of Rome and you're, <laughs> you're uh, writing in the Scipionic circle, uh, you try to massage it a little bit. One of my favorites, actually, uh, stories, uh, I forget what author this is, but the Romans are still consolidating in Italy, right? Uh, this is in the third century. See, third century. They're talking with the people of Tarentum, which is a little town in, what's that part of the boot? Like the heel. Hmm. Yeah, in the heel of the Italian peninsula. And the Roman delegates are trying to speak Greek because it's a Greek town. The Greeks colonized that in southern Italy, uh, profusely. Mm-hmm. It's what's called Magna Graecia. And the Roman delegates, they're negotiating like rights to sail their ships uh, near their sea. And they're trying to speak to this, the town, to the representative of the town in Greek. But they fumble their words. Their Greek is not good. Their pronunciation is bad. So as they're departing the city, the negotiations break down. As they're departing the city, one of the uh, there's a story that a, a certain town drunk, I forget his name off the top of my head, um, he walks over to these weirdos in their togas and he poops on the, t- <laughs> the Roman delegate's toga. And I forget what the comeback is, but the, the, the Roman delegate just basically goes, you're going to regret this. And they do, um, <laughs> because then later uh, the Romans take over. The uh, Tarentum actually invites Pyrrhus of Epirus over. So this is the so this is in the 270s. They invite Pyrrhus over to save them from Roman encroachment. Um, mm. So this is where you get like Romans first encountering elephants. Uh, you have a Hellenistic king attacking the Romans for the first time. Yeah, Italy is just a, a, a the Roman Republic especially is is a, a well that it draws a lot of interest toward. But they don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, mm. Even in the second century, when they're expanding, they're still like interacting uh, with these empires that still are a threat. Even after 188, the Seleucid Empire is still considered a threat. And Tychus the Fourth has a military buildup. He has a military parade an impressive one, 20 years after that treaty, uh, where the Romans say you're not allowed to have elephants and stuff. He has elephants and he parades them around. There's a Roman treaty that says you're not allowed to have elephants? Yeah, because elephants are like, you know, in battle, they're scary. Um, I mean, no, that makes sense. But I just love that there's a treaty that's like, no elephants. That's the new rule. One of the stipulations is, yeah, you can't have elephants. Because it's like, they're basically tanks. Yeah, an um, unfair advantage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one of them is, yeah, one of the two. And they're also a sign of imperial power. They're mm-hmm. a sign of royal power because... I mean, they're badass. Fucking yeah, elephants. exactly. Uh, they, oh, dang it. I forgot off the top of my head. Antiochus, one of the Antiochus had a... I think one of the Seleucid kings had an elephant named Patroclus. Oh. And yeah, he was his favorite too. 
Um, and he got like a silver cage or something because he was the only one that I might be butchering this story, but I'm pretty sure the elephant was called Patroclus and he was given a like pimped out like carriage, the, the, I forget what it's called, the thing on the back of the elephant. He yeah. gets a pimped out one because he's, he was the only elephant that crossed the bridge and while the other elephants were too scared to or something <gasps> like that. So he got a sweet, I'm pretty sure it was Patroclus. That's um, precious. I mean, it's a right. precious story regardless, but I'll take that it's Patroclus. So. <laughs> Elephants are just like the, this. They, you, you have the Bactrian kings who have, I am fascinated by headgear because mm. headgear says a lot about like what you try, what you're trying to be. And the mm. Bactrian kings on these coins have a wonderful like elephant head on, on them, like a elephant hat. That's the skin of an elephant. And it's so like oh. sweet on the, they have the tusks and everything um, oh. because elephants project this like power. Conversely, yeah. to go back to the myths, Philip the second, or sorry, Philip the fifth. Oh my God. Uh, um, the famous Antigonan monarch who fought against the Romans and lost. There's a coin of his early on in his reign where he actually has Perseus cosplay. Like he has a winged hat on one of his coins and he's trying to be Perseus. He's embodying oh Perseus because that's how he legitimizes. He wants to point back because Perseus is tied with the Argive lineage uh, yeah. at Argos. So he's calling back. So you have these like mythic callbacks that these Hellenistic kings are doing all the time. Yeah. Um, so Lucas has Apollo. I don't know if you're familiar with the Seleucus myth. So this is great. And these myths have a, have a hold because we know a lot of them for example, a lot of the Seleucus myths and the myths around like Antioch, we know from a guy called Ioannis Malalas. Malalas, yes. I always, I always, so I think I always add, I always add an extra la. But he's writing, yeah, he's writing in the sixth century CE, and they still like can recall these like local myths about mm. their king. So one of them is that Seleucus the first, the founder of the Seleucid dynasty, his mom was visited by Apollo and they had sex so actually seleucus is the son of apollo and he has a birthmark in his inner thigh in the shape of an anchor so that's one of the myths and then his mom gives him a ring that apollo gave to her to give to her son to sit like with this ring you shall conquer and he eventually conquered the east so they build on these like mythic lineages the seleucid yeah. coins very early on you see apollo on them he, he's naked, he's sitting on an omphalos, and he's like checking a bow, he's like inspecting a bow. And one of the cool things is that if you look at the Achaemenid coins right before the Seleucids, they have the, uh, the, the Achaemenid king sitting on a chair with a bow, and it looks almost like Apollo later on sitting on an omphalos inspecting the bow. Mm. So you have to look at like, how local people that lived under the Achaemenids that have history knowing the Achaemenids before the Seleucids, how they looked at this coin that looked super similar to an Achaemenid king, like an actual Achaemenid king sitting there. But now you have Apollo. Like, do they think that's Seleucus? Yeah. And if so, you have the boundary between moral and divine being super blurred, even more so. So it's stuff like that. Like Seleucus also wrestled the bull. Uh, I forget where they were, but he was just chilling with a bunch of, you know, Alexander's uh, posse and a bull rampaged and almost gored Alexander. And Seleucus, being Seleucus, grabbed the bull by the horns and stopped it. 
And then in the second century, you have people dedicating to a, a king whose lineage goes back to Seleucus. They give him a bull statue. Mm. Like, so like these myths aren't just stories. They, they, they exist in the physical world. People put a lot of emphasis on them. And it's not only the Greeks because other people are there. Most, <laughs> most are not Greeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see them interacting. They bring their own things. The Greeks bring their own. And you have this like hodgepodge, this wonderfully complex hodgepodge, which I think is why the Hellenistic period doesn't get enough credit because it's lumped into this, oh, the Greeks just come in. Greek culture, the superior culture is brought in. It enlightens everyone. And then you have the Romans and then they bring their own stuff, yada, yada. But it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. No, people coexist. People interact with it. The Greeks are just as recipient to local myths as indigenous people are recipient to Greek myths. Mm-hmm. There's not an imbalance of that. Uh, that's yeah. not that's just not how people work, but that's how histories are written. Yeah. Because histories gamify everything. They want, ah, these people come in. It has to be yada, yada, mono, everything. So I'm curious, this... Uh... The work I'm thinking of is definitely not Hellenistic. It's later, but I feel like it is such an emblematic piece, I guess, of, of the Hellenistic period. So I'm curious mm-hmm. if you have any thoughts on on the Dionysiaca knownness. I mean, it's just like a wild epic, like the longest Greek epic I think we have, but I think it's from fourth century CE. So, but that's where we get, I think, most of the content on Dionysus. And his like Indian campaign and Dionysus and all of that. I see it as the product of the Hellenistic period. Mm. Because like we talked about with Barossos, this this Babylonian chronicler, um, there and Catesius with the Persiaca. He wrote the Persica and the uh, Indica. Which is uh, the Persica history uh, of the regions in Assyria and in Babylon, and the Indica, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a, a kind of, it's not like Pausanias with, with mm. Greek, but it, it talks about India. Um, so, yeah, because Dionysus features so prominently um, in, in this conversation about the East and India, and you have all these authors that. We no longer have that uh, contributed so much to the Greco-Roman imaginary mm. of what is going on in that region that it's just a, a, a natural product. But of course, I would say that uh, because I play Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon uh, with the Hellenistic period. But it, it, but it's true because again, like we talked about in the beginning, periodization is moot things do not stop uh and and things of course the the greeks knew about the east before the hellenistic period but there's just so much more interaction on the ground so much more opportunity for that yeah and they'd gone further by then though too right like Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, because were they familiar with india before alexander or like i mean maybe i would say yes because the achaemenids were so through the achaemenids uh for sure but not to the to the degree because it really opens up you have heck you even have inscriptions from like relatively close to india you have bilingual inscriptions in greek uh oh, and cool. and local in yeah so there's so much interaction going on um you have the indo-greek kingdoms 
after Bactria kind of falls in the, the second where is century. Bactria is in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, as much as, yeah, you know, as you know ancient states country. to, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but in, in around those areas, in Central Asia. Uh, and there's wonderful scholarship, super recent scholarship being done on that because that area is just yielding so much new information, so much in the way of in, bilingual inscriptions, coins with, with local script, where you have a very Hellenized king for these Indo-Greek kingdoms that pop up after Bactria Falls in the second century BCE. And you have local script alongside Hellenistic, like Hellenistic imagery, like kings on horseback with the diadems and everything like mm-hmm. that. But you have local script. And also you have temples. The temple architecture is a biggie because they don't conform to traditional Hel- uh, Hellenistic style temples. You see that they have, the famous one is the one at Aikanum. It's called the temple with indented niches um, mm. that shows local adaptation, local syncretism with like pre-Hellenistic local architecture. But then you have a smattering of like your, your Greek temple architecture. And you see these all over the place. Yeah. Well, not all over the place, but certainly you see them pop up. Mm-hmm. Uh, these temples that appeal to different value sets. They're not just spreaders of Hellenic cultures as some museums uh, in Greece, much to my uh, <laughs> dismay. Oh my God, I saw some 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 little labels that just very, very adamant about spreading. And it, it spread, yes, but the wording on it is implying that like, you know, it's it's some sort of manifest destiny or something. I've been doing a lot of like soul searching as to why the heck I'm I'm drawn to this period. Mm. I think a lot of it, especially because like I focus on how subjects communicate with statal power uh, in the Seleucid Empire specifically, and I think that's a has a lot to do with how Puerto Rico is because I was born there. How Puerto Rico manages under the power of the United States and how you have how you negotiate how people we in Puerto Rico you use the US dollar bill in in the Seleucid Empire if you were under them you would use uh minted coinage bearing their insignia bearing their presidents their their uh, kings mm-hmm. uh, so it's stuff like that how do smaller powers negotiate their position with a, with a greater imperial power and just like Puerto Rico you coincide you people continue living you still have local traditions but you see meshes with the power that's dominating the area that's why you have like super spanglish uh uh mm-hmm. and stuff like that you see that in the language you see that in coins and in the seleucid empire you see the phoenician cities with punic alongside the greek you see them trying to translate their local offices into greek words that makes sense when they put on these inscriptions, like in the Diotimos inscription, they're trying to, one of the things is, how do we translate this local magistrate? And they come up with a Greek word. It probably is not a one-to-one, but A. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, Millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's it's so interesting and it connects with like a lot of what I've talked about recently on the podcast, which is just kind of like, obviously I specialize or like I focus on Greek because that's what I know, but I also (laughs) am like making a conscious effort to make sure that all my listeners who are typically not academics, who are just like nerds who want to learn about Greek myth and just make sure that people understand that are the general broad modern and specifically like quote-unquote western understanding of of the greek world is deeply biased and you know and makes greece sound like this be all and end all of intelligence and culture 
And yeah, and then like you're saying how like, you know, the idea of they just spread Hellenistic culture, you know, took over and all this and, and that's nonsense. And, you know, and they even in the classical period and and archaic too, they were, you know, interacting with other people. And, you know, the Mediterranean is a large place and Greece did not exist in a vacuum. And they had their own understandings of everyone else, their own opinions, good and bad. Yeah, it's just it's so fascinating to look at that. Like, like I said, I've recently looked at the general mythological understanding of Africa and just the way that mm-hmm. I, I was interested to I mean, and obviously this is it's very Greek, but it it seems to me somewhat specific to Africa or sort more to, more widespread there, I guess, where they seem to have like really made an emphasis on hellenizing i guess a lot of the things there of like you know the rivers had their hellenic nymphs associated with them and then they those nymphs had the names you know that we know like there's a nile nileus and there's Mm -hmm. memphis they basically like under like you know interact with the egyptians and beyond you know who they called the ethiopians what they called Mm -hmm. libya generally and then developed like greek stories to coincide yeah. And it almost makes me think that they wanted to like see them as less barbarian, I guess, than than they saw a lot of other places because they really made an effort to be like, no, they've got a lot of Hellenic background or, you know, and even the way that they made mm-hmm. Io the founder of Egypt and also the founder of a lot of Greece, right. you know, and they were like, no, no, we see the Egyptians. They're pretty cool. They've got those pyramids. <laughs> like, let's make them Greek somehow in our mythology. And I just find that so interesting. Yeah, that's just like. There's a big thing with mythic geography mm-hmm. and, and the delineation of Greek space uh, and the rationalization of local terrain, ter- like, for example, terrain in Syria or something like that, how to mesh that with the Greek mythic imaginary. And you have some really good example, like um, uh, going back to the, the Seleucus myths, one of them is he wanted to found a city. As all Hellenistic uh, monarchs do, they really love founding cities. Particularly in their mythology, too. So it connects all well. (laughs) Exactamente. And this is in Antioch, on the Orontes, uh, so northern Syria, near the coast, near a a city called Seleucia Piria that I recently did an article for. And you have this mountain called Mount Cassios. Big old mountain. Uh, Okay, you go, big old mountain, sky god, Zeus. There's a myth that Seleucus was sacrificing on the mountain to see where he would found a city. And the myth goes that an eagle comes in, as they often do, and grabs the sacrifice and plops it down where Seleucia Pieria is. And you're like, okay. And there's a, a cult to Zeus. Uh, you see this in the coins. They have a thunderbolt on a really plush cushion, actually. It's like a really comfy cushion that this the <laughs> royal cushion. It's very uh, nice on the coins. Pero, new research has stressed that before there was this foundation, there was already probably a cult to a local sky deity. And these people did not just leave uh, when, uh, you know, Seleucia Pieria. No, they probably went to the city. They were given land or they went into the city or they settled nearby, maybe some redistribution or something. But they probably worshipped they kept on worshiping whatever deity they worshiped before and it coincided with this this new like hellenic identity but you have these coins and they're super proud of it 
and it's more than likely that people saw the thunderbolt and they thought different deities mm-hmm. we of course because we we have a lens uh depending on your your this is one of the things and uh, another reason the the hellenistic period suffers um in terms of scholarship not anymore thankfully but it was draw it, it it was a casualty of that divide that you see in classics where they don't want to acknowledge anything else in the mediterranean mm-hmm. that is going on that is not greek and rome and the hellenistic period suffered because of this for a very long time now thankfully for example i have my wonderful colleagues uh uh working at the uh near eastern uh department uh and the the oriental institute here at u chicago it's one of the big draws why i went here is because you can learn so much from these archaeologists, these historians, heck, these philologists that focus on Near Eastern things and contextualize a lot of the stuff that happens in these empires that has been kind of steamrolled through the predominance in classics and in, in ancient history as, as a, another field uh, in line with this for... Um, oh, Athena is meowing in the background. Um yeah, but the, this emphasis on Greeks and the Romans, uh, that really tinges the conversation in a negative way, uh, because it, it, it erases a lot of people's lived existences and, and how they saw themselves working within this new environment. They survived, like, they survived, they rationalized their own things, myths continue, like people believe, kept their local beliefs. You can have people coinciding with different beliefs. Uh, I know that is harder to say nowadays where everything is becoming so, como que se dice, divisive. And, and that's not to say that there there might not have been instances of violence. That's not to, again, this is not a hand-holding. There is still problems. There is still, the, the state still has arms. There is revolt, especially in Egypt. There's a, mm. a lot of indigenous revolts. But still, people people continue to to survive and and hold on to their beliefs. Beliefs change; they adapt to new things. You rationalize them. It's not just oh, you see Apollo on a coin. I now worship I Apollo. I worship Apollo. Yeah, exactamente. Exactamente. Yeah, and 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 current research is is shedding light on this. It's a, uh, it's one of the the wonderful things about studying it now is that you have so many options for and even heck even general books are now popping up that that seek to ameliorate this problem of a a heavily western greek and roman bias um Mm -hmm. and it's so dynamic and so fun stephanie langenhooper a wonderful scholar she just recently released a book on miniatures like miniature figurines that Hmm. that children play with in hellenistic babylonia yeah, and cool. and you see, yeah, exactly, and you see like references to Greek goddesses alongside local divinities, mirabile dictu. Uh, these two things can happen. People can see different things in different objects, mm-hmm. or in the same object. Excuse me. Yeah, I think that's why it's so it's so fulfilling to study this because it, you can still have you can still be interested in like Greek mythology. And you can approach it through that lens, but you can see how people respond to it if you want. Just like if if you're someone that does like a Near Eastern scholarship, you can totally look at it from the other side. That's one of the mm-hmm. good things about Hellenistic history is that more and more scholars are incorporating dialogues that are occurring in fields like Near Eastern history, uh, archaeology, everything like that. 
a lot of it is driven again because we don't have much sources, much <laughs> literary sources. Yeah. And, and and somewhat thank God for that, or else we wouldn't be so heavily invested in all of this. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more. It, it, it's it's a really um, yeah. It's not just Alexander and Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much stuff in between. So much weird stuff. The Satanic Panic in Rome with Bacchus. Ooh, do tell. Wait. So there's this super, I'm sure some Roman historian will chide me for calling it the satanic panic, but it's I, so I, fun. There's, there's there's an inscription called the Senatus uh, Consultum de Bacchanalibus, the, the decision of the Senate, uh, the Senate concerning the Bacchanals, the worshippers mm. of Bacchus. Mm-hmm. And this is in 186 BCE, it's published. Um, and it's these these conservative Romans, like you think of your Cato the Elders or something, your your hardcore conservative traditional Roman value Romans, panicking because these Greek cults are coming in and people are worshiping Bacchus and they're having these rites at night and we don't know what's happening. They might like be plotting to to overthrow the state. Pentheus at all. Yeah, it's like the fire <laughs> festival, but like a political <laughs> fire festival. Um, and and so you have this like freak out moment in 186. And it, it's 186. So it's like Rome is still dipping its toes into the, the world of the Hellenistic East. Um, mm. So you have this like backlash where you have this, this consultant, this decision of the Senate that goes like, hey, you can't meet at night. Parties can be no larger than so-and-so. Like, they're super worried about this, this new cult. And a lot of it is tied, this is one of the things that I focus on too, on perceptions of the East as corrupting, as wealthy, and as sexually deviant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Exactly. Uh, They're seen as passive, soft things. They're they're subservient because they're under kings. So they naturally must. There's a lot of like geographical thinking also that the heat is what causes them to to be soft and compliant. <laughs> see, pero yes, but you see like 19th century histories latching onto this uh, this notion, like this Greco-Roman notion of the East. This is especially clear when you talk about like the Roman emperors. The ones that come from the East, they generally get a bad rap. Uh, they get dragged through the muck. In in uh, ancient sources, they get called like like feminine, uh, uh, yeah, sexually transgressive, or and other things. And it does have this association with just like they see the Germans as a bunch of uh, the Romans see the Germans as a bunch of weirdos with uh, big beards that like keep to themselves that don't interbreed with other tribes or something like that. So they keep their fighting prowess and that gets taken to dangerous levels later on when you have 19th century German scholars looking at this and going, ah, racial purity is what made, Uh uh-huh. There's a a wonderful book by a scholar. It's called A Most Dangerous Book. And it deals with Tacitus's Germania and how Tacitus, this Roman author, talks about Germany and talks about like these weirdo Germans who keep to themselves and keep their race pure and that's why they're strong. And then 19th century German authors 
hot off the heels of like German nationalism, you know, this is the time when German unification happens. They're looking for past history. They're looking for something in antiquity to, to make a German people unite under this new mm-hmm. nation state. And they look towards that. And that's when stuff starts getting real dangerous. But yeah. the East has a similar thing. Uh, the barbarians in the in the north they're hardy weirdos they're hairy they put um butter in their hair to make it shine i don't know if you've seen 90 day fiance but that always <laughs> makes me think of big ed with the mayonnaise in his hair it's so gross um and, <laughs> but the east is a similar thing where where you have the and you can still see it somewhat like they're corrupt they're exotic they have all this money and wealth and that naturally leads to like they're fat or or they're they're uh they take on multiple partners they let themselves be penetrated <gasps> they, they hoard all this money and you see this in like hellenistic ptolemaic kings they get depicted like this all the yeah. time um all i can think of is 300 I feel sí, like exactamente. 300, yeah, is like a perfect sí. example of all that. Sí, exactamente. Heck, if they did a 300, uh, well, they wouldn't do it. But there's a there's a battle of Thermopylae, Antiochus the third versus the Romans. Hmm. Uh, right? Uh, it, 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 it is, it's not 197. It's in the 190s. Uh, forgive me, I forget off the top of my head. Did it happen at Thermopylae? Yeah. Oh, like right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but if you read the accounts of it, Antiochus kind of puts himself in the position of the the Hellenic, like the Greeks mm. and the Romans are kind of portrayed as the weirdos that are invading. Mm. So there's kind of like a duality. But that also happens. Um, there's a very famous invasion of Gauls that occurs in Greece, right? In the, the 270s. This is like a, a moment in, in time, you have this Gallic invasion that goes all the way to Delphi. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. There's a battle at Thermopylae. There's an, a, a league of, of Greeks that uh, try to stop them at Thermopylae. They're successful somewhat, but then there's some forces that reach Delphi. Um, this is in 279 and 8. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another little branch that goes into Asia Minor. And they eventually become the Galatians uh, mm. that dwell in central uh, Asia Minor. And the fun thing is that these Galatians later get beat up by an Adelid king. So the Adelids are the ones that are in Pergamon. Um, and then you have the um, the altar of Pergamon, the famous altar of Pergamon, right? Under Eumenes II in the second century BCE that gets constructed. And you have this battle against the Galatians in like the 240s, I believe. And it gets recast as the gigantomachy. Hmm. So, yeah, so the Pergamene king, um, which I believe is Attalus I at this point, it's not Philatidos. Uh, Attalus I defeats the Galatians, right? And the Attalids are set up as the Olympian gods, and the hmm. Gauls are set up as the giants. There's a lot of cosmology also that gets tied into Hellenistic kingship. Yeah, like Antiochus IV has that parade that I mentioned a while ago. He has a wonderful parade at Daphne. And it's kind of like a celestial cosmology. He has a lot of different gods that show up and day and night are represented. And he's at the head of it in this incredibly lush procession. And there's a lot of like symbolism for like Hellenistic kings being the the cosmos. They're the order bringers. They're the ones that um, you need 
a lot of it is tied to yeah notions of Greek mythology, but also Near Eastern mythology because the the empires that came before that, of course, used similar things. They were the order, the Assyrians uh, uh, and the Achaemenids that were the order, and everything outside the empire was chaos. Hmm. So a similar line of thinking. So everybody in that parade could like get a grasp of what was going on. You did not need to be up on your like Greek mythology to yeah. figure out what the heck is going on. Yeah, it's just one of those things that's lost, oh. uh, I guess, in, in translation and in, in, in superficial uh, superficial readings. And, and But we love our clean and nice histories. The problem is that history doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is why every, every academic gets called a spoil sport or something. I don't like Alexander. Oh, no. I must want to cancel him. No, I just want people to realize that he is a privileged uh, son of a king who got one heck of a great army behind him. Of course, he was a great general also. uh, But still, he did some bad stuff. Uh, uh, (laughs) As the people of Tyre, 30,000 roughly people got sold into slavery. Like, we have to keep, yeah, we have to keep things balanced. We can't fall back to this, like, hero worship and you see this with like your bezos and your your uh musks where they like and and what's his face uh the metaverse guy uh oh zuckerberg see they see themselves as like augustus or or there are interviews that they yeah i mean and alexander have a classics degree see we don't talk about him uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things I could say, but Bezos, especially, I, uh, I believe he's the one that like called Alexander forward. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, Hellenistic statuary is amazing. Like, I feel like that's what I've always known about the Hellenistic period is, like, their statues are on fucking point. Everybody knows the Roman copy of a Hellenistic original is the thing. You have the Mm -hmm. dying Gaul. The dying Gaul commemorated four battles against the Galatians Mm -hmm. um, and and set up for that. Uh, But it's taken so far from the context, the Hellenistic context. Mm -hmm. um, And it's just a Roman copy of Hellenistic original. And that's all that people see. Yeah. And, and so what do you like, I'm just curious on your thoughts on that exactly. Like, do we think that it's not, wasn't a Hellenistic original or are you just thinking no, that the, yeah. the idea is what it, they see? Is it's the, the labeling. The it's labeling, the, yeah. the labeling of it. But the Romans were super fascinated by, by Hellenistic art and uh, Greek mm. art in general. Like you have the siege of Syracuse. The Romans famously plundered all the art from Syracuse and they brought it back to, to Bedeck, uh, Rome. So many instances in the second century of just Roman generals campaigning in Greece and then taking anything that they want and bringing it back to Rome. It's this like artistic merit. Um, a, a lot of those were also classical. Uh, it's not just only Hellenistic stuff, mm-hmm. but the Hellenistic period is one of the most fascinating periods in terms of art because you start seeing statues representing people outside of quote unquote and these are big quote unquote the norm Mm -hmm. um you start seeing people with body types that are different um you start seeing for example some really wonderful statues of like an old drunk woman just like crying next to her her jar of wine and like the wrinkles are there (laughs) Her face is like, it's so different from like the Corey or something. Mm-hmm. Just like the, the expressionless, serene face. You start seeing one of the problems um, is that there's a lot of terracotta statuettes uh, mm-hmm. that are labeled by museums as grotesque 
because they don't conform to our notions of like a healthy body or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, disability studies have, have got an incredible way at length to, to really break them down, like, and try to see, like, there's one where a woman has a very exposed, like, skeletal, uh, skeletal chest, and she's also very long, it's a terracotta figurine from Asia Minor. Yeah, she's very, like, tall and, and lanky. And it's just labeled as a grotesque, but it could be someone living with a disability that people mm-hmm. just, uh, museum curators or something back in the day, the identifiers just called this a grotesque. But but there is a fascination in the Hellenistic period with depicting the human body in, in a lot of different shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, the merits of it, um, especially... Um, and just like ah, oh, there's so it, it, there's so much um, there. You have Himbo Heracles, of course. You have depictions of the Minotaur. There's just yeah, Hellenistic statues are just great, and we've lost so many because mm. there's so many inscriptions that were supposed to have a statue or something, and then the statue gets lost or reused or gets. I don't know, melted down that's the thing i was gonna say you think about the bronze alone like how little bronze we have versus how much we know they made of bronze is wild and sad yeah and and we think about these big statues but there's also figurines like i talked about Mm -hmm. with uh dr langenhooper's research on hellenistic figurines but we see them in in in, uh, ptolemaic egypt and in asia minor uh, especially also some in syria but you just see like local gods uh uh chilling alongside you know the greeks uh um mm. and there's just there there's so much there in 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 so many ways and you, yeah it, it's just really crazy to think about someone looking at a statue of of i don't know that old drunk woman or something and finding I, something I there yeah, yeah, let me. I need, to, I, I need to find it. She sounds like my future, and I love it. <laughs> she like hanging on to wine. <laughs> like I think the statue, old drunkard, is what the statue is called. Oh so God. it's not me like giving air, old drunken woman. But she, yeah, she's just like looking up. So yeah, if you, the Wikipedia thing for for listeners, if you just search like old drunkard Hellenistic statue or something. <laughs> That's the actual Wikipedia page is Old Drunkard. And of course, there's two marble copies. Oh, I love her. Right? Wow. And and apparently, yeah, apparently she may have ties to Dionysus as a worshiper of Dionysus uh, because she does have some like uh, stuff in her hair and stuff like that. So she could actually be a worshiper of Dionysus. Maybe nipped a little bit too much. Uh, Haven't we all? Um, Yeah. Back in my my bachelor or uh, bachelor days, my uh, when I when I was doing my BA, yeah, Lord knows that was me many a nights. <laughs> but yeah, like there's a, there's a, a there's a fascination with like the human form, and you see this on coins too, like Hellenistic. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people make a big deal of Caesar being portrayed on Roman coins realistically. You know, with that mm-hmm. turkey neck he's got dangling. Mm-hmm. But that happened, uh, that was a, a large product of the Hellenistic period. Um, mm. Starting with Alexander, you have depictions on the coins, of course. But then you have like individualized, like super, well, they're idealized porches, of course. They're showing us what they want to show. So there's always that caveat. But mm-hmm. still, 
Antiochus Grippos, one of the Seleucid kings. Grippos, meaning hook nose. He has a very prominent, like, hooked mm -hmm. nose. And you see that on the coin. Cleopatra's is like that too, right? Yeah. There's a lot of references of, yeah, she has like a very prominent nose yeah. in, in her coins. It's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You start mm -hmm. seeing like this this shift towards like the ideal or or at least like a more vivid representation uh, that has, uh, yeah, there's so many things you can say about it from like, what do you think the, that's trying to say to the subjects? What's that trying to communicate to the subjects? Like what mm -hmm. picture of a king or a queen are you trying to do there? I also had this storyline though. I, there, there was no like way that I could. I was trying to see how I could. Uh, uh, Como que se Do a uh, what's it called? Like a transition into this story. Mm. Um, another great thing about the Hellenistic period: you have a bunch of inscriptions. You see things like traveling doctors because of this interconnected, like the uh, the poleis of, of Greece and Asia Minor and 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 Syria are all in dialogue they're sending representatives uh uh and everything like that um you see doctors that go from city to city and they get honorific degrees so and so help this city in the time of praise so they put up this there's like the civic nature of greek cities changes somewhat they become more interconnected into this network uh, that's mm. a, a word that everyone loves to throw out network uh network theory and everything but they're right and one of my favorites is it's a dedication. Uh, let me see if I can remember her name. Oh, Aristodama of Smyrna. She gets a dedicatory inscription, an honorific inscription set up by the city of Lamia. This is in Thessaly. They set up an inscription honoring her because she is actually a wandering poetess. Hmm. And she goes from city to city. She composes epic poems and she sings them. And she did such a good job of singing about the local lineage of the city, the local myth of the city, that they set up this honorific uh, uh, inscription for her, uh, tied up probably with a statue, and they gave her a bunch of rights. Like she had the right to be a citizen there. She could own property and it transferred to her family. So, but you see this happening. Like, like that story that I told about the... the um, that Antiochus invited a poet to come to Antioch and to do a commentary on the Iliad, you start seeing more and more networks and, and the movement of peoples and guilds and stuff like that in this period, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, not to say that this did not occur before, but mm -hmm. you just start seeing it more because mm -hmm. there, there's more shifts. Uh, there's more interactions. There's more accessibility things have opened up more in terms of, of communications. And, and yeah, it's just a, yeah. a natural byproduct of just an expanded Eastern Mediterranean, especially. Um, and I'm sure just technological advancements too, just given the time period and how much had changed over like so many hundreds of years from yeah, say, yeah, the archaic yeah. period to, to Hellenistic. Oh, this is uh, one of my... Uh, wonderful advisors on Bresson uh, talks about this. He's an economic historian. He talks about, there's actually, there's, there's this debate going on about how much actual technological advancement there was. Mm. Um, because you see some like, yeah, one of the big things that you see, there's a lot of military innovation. I don't, I, I don't want to say technological advancement, just innovation, different things being tried out. You start seeing huge boats uh, Hellenistic navies is a thing. One of my mm -hmm. professors in undergrad, uh, William Murray, he wrote a book on 
Hellenic Hellenistic navies and how they push the limits on like you have your your bog standard triremes yada yada Athenian Empire yada yada but then you have like uh, one of the Ptolemies does like a a, a huge forty like rower one that like carries I don't know how many people on like this super barge it's like something right off the History Channel um, but yeah. Yeah, you start seeing like archivization. You start seeing uh, a lot more increase in like literature being discussed and written down and handed out. Um, yeah, in terms of technological innovation, that's something that yeah, it's one of those tricky things because it depends mm-hmm. so much on the area and all that. It, not leaps and bounds mm. uh, from the classical period. It's more yeah, I guess you could uh, yeah. It's just I hard to pinpoint. Too, but... Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, and and maybe it's just more of a matter of they just wrote more things down, and I mean, hey, great, or or like inscribed more things, or what have you. Yeah, there there is a boon in literary culture, um, um, and and uh, facilitated so yeah, like one of the things that I work on is like seals and stuff like mm. that in archives, and you can see it in the coins and stuff. You can see how how. There's more like an increase in the artistry of the coins. Um, a lot of it also has to do with just increased awareness of uh, practices already prevalent uh, mm-hmm. in in the Near East and everything, and that being brought out. Such a good period. Uh, oh. again, again, I'm a biased source, uh, uh, I mean, but wonderful. still, uh, uh, yeah. Then you have like uh, uh, Cybele is like in this period oh, she gets yeah. she gets uh the second punic war is when you get the the black stone quote-unquote being transported uh to rome uh so they get yeah if you even want to look at it from a roman centric if you want to stay on the romans which you're more than welcome to do uh, as someone who's interested in this period there's nothing wrong with that um I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> I say that with a slight uh, tinge of eh. um, the right person. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, you have uh, these like quote unquote Eastern cults uh, being brought into Rome. And it, it, the fun thing is that they bring her in. She's a Phrygian goddess, of course. Um, and they don't expect these for the Romans weirdos, these priests of hers, right? Like Ali. Uh, uh, practice self castration. They wear makeup. They they sometimes shave their legs, uh, and they don't expect those to come along with the goddess. So it's kind of like a culture shock. But this period is also one of culture shock, like the the Greeks pooping on the Roman toga and stuff like that. Like, yeah, Rome just doesn't like uh, kick in the door into this period. Like there's there's um, struggles there there it changes rome uh mm. just as much as it changes the composition of the, the east and so much of rome afterwards is attributed to the hellenistic kingdoms like mm. the cult of the emperor finds purchase in asia minor because they had cult, they had like they they knew hellenistic kings they they right. they're yeah appeals to myth like, and stuff like that yeah yeah they were like ready for ready for that already. yeah exactly right. they, yeah. they they more easily uh, deified and, and mm-hmm. it is still the subject of debate of course everything is subject to debate um, but the Roman emperors found greater d- divine purchase in, in these places uh, where there was already a, a rich history of rulers co-opting myth and co-opting um, like their divine nature to justify their rule um, mm-hmm. 
so yeah, there, there, it's just there's so many, so much precedent for for Roman rule in these areas that get glossed over because again, this period is like the middle child. People just want to get rush through it to get to I don't know Augustus or something, mm-hmm. Cleopatra. Again, that's mm-hmm. why like I understand why books in the Hellenistic period often use the like a little subtitle or something from Alexander to Cleopatra. But, but that's always bothered me to to some extent. Um, yeah, like it's catchy, angry, but yeah. then you're not you're you're more likely to yeah like ignore or gloss over the in between exactly in to get between those two. Yeah, like not every king looked back at Alexander, mm-hmm. and not everyone that looked at a coin of a Seleucid, of a Ptolemaic, of a Antigonic king, and saw a youthful king with curls thought immediately Alexander. Like, mm-hmm. It's just one of those things that you have to be wary because, of course, Mm -hmm. Alexander features prominently, but features prominently who? Uh, Because we Mm -hmm. transplant our own value sets when we come up with these theories like, oh, Alexander, like people would have known. It's like, you sure about that? Like how many would have known? Maybe they just thought he was super good looking and like had really sweet curls. Like not everyone goes, aha, reference to Alexander. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just one of those things that you have. There, there's the it's the ghost of Alexander that is pernicious, uh, and then you have just like the the people just want to uh, go down to Cleopatra because she's so famous mm-hmm. and she encapsulates so much of the Hellenistic. You have a, a queen, uh, queens figure so prominently in in the Hellenistic period. It's one of mm. there's wonderful scholarship being done now. There's wonderful conferences on like just Hellenistic Queens because yeah, because they, they get put in positions of power because you have Royal families now. And once you have Royal families, of course, the Queens decide the Queens bring up children. They decide on policy. If the child is, is not um, old enough yet to take the throne, they can kill the child if they really want to, which is how, um, or they can kill their husband and take over. There's so many dynamics there. And Cleopatra encompasses like, she knows so, so and so languages, seven languages. She's a polyglot. Mm-hmm. The Hellenist appeared as one of intense interaction between languages, not, not only Greek, but like Aramaic and Greek, uh, and, and, and local Indian script on Greek, uh, Greek, quote unquote, Indo Greek mm-hmm. uh, coinage. Um, mm-hmm. There's just uh, so much there for. for... And I, I see the allure. I just, I just mm-hmm. wish people would stop. <laughs> or at least give them a break. Like yeah. they've earned, they've earned a rest. Right. Talk about another Cleopatra. Cleopatra yeah. Thea, my boo. She's wonderful. She like leads. She does so much stuff. She's always in the wings, working on stuff. Greco-Roman authors hate her. Uh, I sound like an ad for like, one of these pop-up ads. <laughs> the queen but, nobody wants you to know about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh man, um, yeah. But, but yeah, and and they conform so much again to this like notion of like sexuality in, in the East and this like mm-hmm. inverse of of the male dominated uh, structure of the Greeks and the Romans back home. Um, mm-hmm. Men become women, women become men. Uh, that is a thing that Greco-Roman authors like latch on to. Yeah, if you stay in the East too long, you become Antony. 
uh, for example, as Augustine right. propaganda would have you believe. Uh, you become luxurious and, and soft and effeminate. You put on makeup. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Oh, it's also interesting. But this was incredible. <laughs> this was <such laughs> an incredible conversation. It yeah. is very rare that I talk to anyone this long. Oh my god! So <laughs> no, of course, I had a, a ball again. It, it, rare that I get to to wax poetic about this if it's on like a conference or something. Uh, so yeah, no. It's a thrill. It's my this is my favorite part of the job is when I just get to get academics talking. <laughs> Editing it afterwards is my last favorite part. But no, I love good, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I know. God, I can't even imagine. <laughs> well, this is gonna be two episodes, which is great. <laughs> I'll take it. Perfect. Uh, uh, is there anything that you want to share with my audience or promote or anywhere you want them to follow you? Anything at all? No, no, I don't I have a blog, but like, I don't update it that much. Uh, <laughs> I like shit post on Twitter. <laughs> there's a lot of otter yeah, there's a lot of otter content. Uh, uh, some thirst tweets from now and then ancient thirst tweets, uh, some like lewd martial poetry that I do from time to time. But like, yeah, no, I'm just a, a graduate student in his fourth year who like really likes to talk about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I don't have like a mixtape or anything. Um, yeah, I just like talking about this stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I'll take it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really yeah, appreciate it. No, of course. Um, I had a delightful time. Ugh, once again, thank you all so much for listening. This part of my job, man, it's the fucking coolest. Also, I'm recording and editing so many things so far advance, in advance right now that I'm, I'm kind of lost in all the episodes and conversations. Just no idea what things I'm saying repeatedly, like back to back. So when you hear this, I'll be in Greece, writing my novel and only vaguely working on the podcast. So make sure you're following me on Instagram for pictures of me in new and exciting places. I'll share some facts maybe when I remember. Ideally, I'll do an Instagram live or two. Again, when I remember because I'm shit at remembering. But pictures? Ugh, I remember to take and post pictures. That's for sure. I might even record an episode over there. We will see. In any case, that's all to say, here's another instance of me waxing about how much I appreciate you all for listening and helping this to be my job, for loving conversation episodes and wanting to listen to me listen to scholars tell me everything that lives inside their brains. It's so, so much fun and I am so, 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 so grateful that this is my job and life, like what the actual fuck, you know? Anyway, this was such an incredibly fun conversation to have. I mean, so fun it's two episodes. That's a real feat. It was also interesting and insightful. Like I learned so much about the bits and pieces of the Hellenistic period. I simply, I couldn't bring myself to cut out like a half an hour of it. Hell no, two episodes it is. Now, as much as he didn't ask you to, I would highly recommend you follow Eduardo on Twitter, not least because he's incredibly funny and shares lots of otter photos. There's a link in the episode's description. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She handles so many things, just like everything, you know? Especially while I'm away, she's a true lifesaver. Absolutely love Michaela. Our intern is Grace Roby. She's helping out with loads of things as well. But again, when I'm recording this, she hasn't started, so I can't be specific, but I know she's going to be great. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Nerd stuff. 
am I right? Who doesn't love learning for free? Isn't that what makes podcasts just the fucking coolest things? Thank you all so much for listening, learning along with me. I am Liv and I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.